This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, I've actually got a guest on that I had the pleasure of meeting through a mutual friend a number of years ago. We met at a networking lunch or dinner, and I just remember really being impressed with him from the first moment I chatted with him. He's got a really, really cool history professionally, and uh, I consider him kind of a like an internet OG. He's been you know doing a lot of the same things that I've been doing for a really long time. And uh, anytime I thought I could drop an old school internet story on him, he had he had one to match and, and maybe one to beat me too. His name is Eric Eden. And what I love about Eric, besides having a super cool rock star sounding kind of name, is that he's worked for a multitude of VC and private equity backed companies over the years. And he has a really, really good idea of what it means to grow a business. He also happens to be a big crypto investor and believes it's the biggest opportunity to grow since the dot-com boom. Uh, something we're going to have a nice, friendly, healthy debate about. But this is someone who I think really understands what it means to grow a business. He's been the CMO of a company called Cvent that had a, a pretty successful and large exit. He was the CMO of PostClick. Frankly, he's been the CMO of a lot of really uh, cool B2B SaaS firms, which is probably why he's now the executive in, uh, in residence at uh, Information Venture Partners. Uh, but with all that hype, I'm looking forward to having a great, engaging conversation. We're really talking about what it means to drive growth. With that, here we go with another week of OSHIP. Eric, welcome to Ship. How are you? Great. Thanks for uh, chatting today, Freddie. Oh, my, my pleasure. I, I know. Uh, what part of the country are you calling in from today? Uh, just outside DC in uh, in Virginia today. And, and I, I heard you have your own live audience with you today. Yes, I have a, uh, a little French bulldog here, but you know he doesn't he doesn't find what I have to say that interesting. So he's <laughs> right, <now>. right. <laughs> uh, I, I know you're on the road and uh, and traveling as as usual. So I'm glad we were able to find some time to uh, to to hook up here. I know this is going to get into a bunch of interesting territory today. I've talked a little bit about your background, but I do want to give other people watching the show a chance to understand you know some of the things you've done. Uh, before we dig into some of the lessons you've learned along the way around around growing companies. So uh, let's start off with, guess what, what was the first high growth company that you were you were ever involved in? Yeah, so I got I got super lucky and um, right out of college, went to work at Network Solutions, which was a central registry for domain names and IP addresses. Yeah. At the very start of the dot-com boom, when there was less than 100,000 domain names registered. And when I was there... For three years, we got to more than five million names registered. So at hundred dollars each, you know, made five hundred million dollars in a very short period of time, which led to one of the most successful IPOs of the of the dot com era. So that was a pretty good way to start. Yeah, well, people people back then you didn't even really think about other or other registrars. I mean, it's like they they were the, they were the only name in the game. So pretty pretty exciting. How old were you when you were there? Uh, 22. And um, factually, most people at that time thought the internet was just a fad. 
and that it was just gonna it was gonna it was gonna fade away. I was like, I, I don't think so. I don't think that's gonna happen. Okay, honest, honest question or honest answer. And you have a really good vision for the future. And I'm a diehard internet guy. Even I don't think I could have predicted how much the internet was going to permeate all of our all of our lives. Uh, you know, twenty years forward. Did you? Did you? I mean, you knew it wasn't a fad, but do you think it was going to be this big? I did actually. Like when it, when the anyway, this is why you won on crypto too. <laughs> <laughs> I did because like when I started studying it when I was in college, it wasn't a formal program, but I just was very interested and in I started following it. And I was like, this is, this is transformational to everything. And uh, being so young, I was, I guess, more open to it. But, you know, in my second job, you know, it, it was Varia, which was a roll-up of 53 internet companies. They raised $2.5 billion in venture capital and um, sold it for $5.5 billion cash right before the dot-com bust. But essentially, you know, during that time, it was really interesting because the internet was actually very controversial, sort of like crypto is today. You know, we were calling people trying to get them to um, put up a website for their company. And they're like, why did, Why does my company need a website? My company doesn't need a website. People were like, I'm never going to buy anything on, on the internet with a credit card because they thought it would be fraud, you know, and today people buy everything on their credit cards. So it's interesting, you know, it's like to, in the early days, things are usually very controversial. And I do think it was, you know, for the internet until it was, not because it was so successful. I want to ask another personal question before we get into some of the very tactical things around these high growth companies you've worked in, some of the lessons you've taken along the way. Do you love high growth companies for starters? Yeah. I mean, that's been the whole thing for me because some people feel it's chaotic because fast moving doesn't really you know, do it justice. Things move very fast, but it's also you have to figure a lot of things out as you go. So it's much different than working for larger companies where you're just sort of trying to do maintain things and grow a little bit. It's like, you know, you're trying to grow a minimum of 35% a year. That's a big challenge and it can be chaotic. And I've had people who work with me who said, just, this isn't what I want to do. It, this is, you know, crazy. And so some people don't like to work in environments where you're a catalyst for change. It's just, but that's what I really love. And I've always worked for venture backed and private equity companies in the last 20 years, you know, for that reason, because I, I love driving growth and that's what PE and VC firms are really sort of one of the main fundamental things is it's about driving growth and adding value, right? What's the worst part of a high growth company? It's a lot of work. I mean, it's not, it's not a 40 hour a week <laughs> thing. It's closer to a 70, 80 hour a week thing. And aside from being a lot of work, um, it can be frustrating. Things don't always go perfectly. Sometimes you have to test things and try a number of different things. You know, and when you have, you know, a lot of people who are putting in a lot of effort and things don't go perfectly, you know, there's a lot of different personal dynamics and companies that you have to often, you know, work through because everything's always not, you know, coming up, you know, roses and champagne. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to work through a lot of hard challenges together as a team to sort of get to success. It's it's not usually a walk in the park. And if that's the worst, what's the bit that you love about high growth companies? Yeah, I mean, w- what I love about it is, is like that, the exits. Um, <laughs> yes, the exits. <laughs> um, you know, Stevens exit for one point six billion dollars was amazing after the after the IPO and after ten years of working really hard to build it. It's just a really good feeling to work at a company 
to drive growth, to add value and to see the outcome. And I've been you know, lucky to be a part of you know, a lot of great exits and outcomes. It's a spectrum, you know, everything is not as on as grand of a scale as what Seaven did, but other companies that exited for hundreds of millions of dollars, that was still, you know, really rewarding after putting in years of work on it. Mm -hmm. Right. One last question within this theme. So we've established why you with this worst is you know why you uh, why you love them. Are you addicted to high growth companies? Could you ever work in something that wasn't a high growth company or does, does that just do it for you? No, I, I, I'm always going to work for high high growth companies. Um, I knew it. I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't, I'd be bored out of my mind. If someone, I always said, if I had, someone gave me a really stable business, like just run this, just don't screw it up. You don't have to grow a lot. Just don't shrink. I'd be like, it could be the biggest brand in the world. And I'd be like, Nah, I'm good. Thanks. I worked in government contracting for a year, and it's not that's that not enough. a great business. And I was just like, never again, never. <laughs> that's amazing. So let's let's dig into some more of the the meat of this. I guess I guess I'd love to start with you know what do you see? Or what do you think drives uh, drives growth? You know what can, what can companies do to drive growth? You know, thinking about this at the big halo level. Yeah, I think there's three key things really. You know, one of them is focusing on the right things. Uh, the second one is having, you know, big ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. And the third thing is really around creative execution. So focusing on the right ideas and big ideas and creative execution are really the three sort of magic pieces, you know, that need to go together. I know those are very high level things, but, you know, I think they're pretty, they're pretty fundamental because when you don't have those things, you just don't achieve success is, is what I've seen across working with a lot of companies. And what do you think of those three things? What's the most common to get wrong? I'd say it's pretty equal across the three, actually. I mean, there's a lot to get right in those, in, in those three areas. I, I like, I have a saying I like to say is, is that there's hundreds of of ways that things can go wrong and very few ways they can go right. <laughs> That's the challenge in business. Really. Yeah, it's really true. You know, when I think about my own kind of entrepreneurial ventures, one of the things I've gotten better at as I've gotten older and more experienced is around, is around focus. But I can definitely think about earlier in my career, especially when you're really passionate about something or you've got something you, you know, whether it's, especially if you're a product, maybe it's a product-based company. I know you do a lot of work in the SaaS space to get lost in kind of all the, all the possibilities. Uh, and, and, and I think that, that the, the less focused you are, the more kind of risk I think you can introduce into the business. I'd be intrigued to hear, um, you know, how you uh, help other companies or the companies you work at find focus uh, when that's you know, such a big part of the equation. Yeah. I mean, focus is, is really a privilege. I mean, and when, when companies try to do too many things, they're really masters of nothing. And the hardest thing for companies to really do is decide what they're not going to do, because there's usually a a lot of really good ideas, you know, to focus on. But the areas of focus have to be on things that have growth potential, right? Not everything has growth potential. And that's, I think, frustrating for some people. They don't, that doesn't quite click for them. And they spend a lot of time and money and effort on just an area that's, you know, the dog's not going to hunt you know? And so you have to pick, you know, the right, the right area to focus where growth is possible. And I like to say where you have, where you have the, the, the tailwinds versus headwinds, because if you're, if you're trying to, to work, focus on an area that's going to be 
you know, hard. I mean, you're really pushing that rock up the hill. It's a lot harder than most people think when they start out. Mm -hmm. So choosing the right area of focus, if you choose the wrong area, you're sort of kind of really making it hard. You're stacking the deck against yourself, if you will. Mm -hmm. Doing the research and really investigating, you know, if if it is a growth, an area that can grow is, is important upfront. I feel like there was, uh, you know, so, so obviously so many different schools of thought of how to approach uh, uh, building a business. And you'll get, you know, I think one subset of people with a kind of, you know, kind of classic startup fail first mentality, try, you know, rapid iteration of ideas, you know, put them to market, see what works and, and, uh, and keep iterating. And then you could argue there are other people that I've seen become extremely successful by staying true to one idea and, and just you know, being persistent and, and fighting the good fight until they push that idea into into success. In your career, what do you feel like has been more representative of, uh, of success for you? Or maybe it's an, even another path. Yeah, I think it's just part of the research of, of focusing on the right area and determining if you have a big idea is, you know, do you have product market fit? That's usually one of the biggest issue and reasons that companies aren't successful. And most companies don't succeed. Like, only one out of 100,000 who starts and wants to go public, you know, makes it. And so, you know, when you look at when you look at product market fit, it is those things you mentioned. It is testing it and getting out there and getting feedback and iterating on it. And, you know, if you if you just if you have something people don't really want to buy or they're not really willing to pay for it, then, you know, you're not going to be a growth success. And so finding that product market fit is probably the most important you know, driver of, you know, mm. the litmus test for if, if, if you have the right focus and really a big idea. I don't want to put you too much on the, on the spot, but maybe I secretly do. Uh, you know what, and obviously without having to name any names, if you're not comfortable with that, but have you been in any situations where you've joined a company um, and, and it, the product market fit wasn't, wasn't there? Maybe you thought it was there, but it wasn't there. I, I certainly have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've worked for several SaaS companies which had great teams and had a good idea, you know, for the product, but we went out there and, and we tested it and just people didn't want it. Like the, the people that we were targeting to buy it, just we couldn't convince them. And maybe it was because we didn't have the right features. One of them was, you know, online benefits enrollment for companies taking that paper process, process of enrolling people in their, in their employment benefits every year on paper and, and enabling co companies to do that online. And we just couldn't get, we couldn't convince the insurance companies and the insurance brokers to, to adopt that process. They just, they didn't want to do it. And so, you know, we spent a year, a year trying to like get convinced, you know, the hundreds of thousands of insurance brokers and companies to move this online and they just weren't interested in it. They weren't investing, weren't interested in investing in that. And so I've been through experiences like that where you have a good team and you want it to really work and you put a lot of effort into it and everyone works really hard and you just always don't have some, the right thing that people, that the people want. Right. And so that's unfortunate when it happens, but that's why you have to do that testing and you have to do the research and you have to sort of prove it before you really spend too much time and effort, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a, sometimes I feel like you get these people with this kind of classic, like, uh, uh, you know, solution in search of a problem uh, kind of startups. I certainly feel like, 
you know, my startup guide uh, struggled a little bit with that. You know, when we a lot with that, I should say. But you know, when when we went out there, I had had some ideas, and you know, I was really excited about the potential of how you know the, all these problems I thought they could solve. But I, I'm not sure it was a a problem that the market had. It was maybe a you know something that I a perceived problem I had. And frankly, there's no way of growing your way out of that. Uh, you know, if you haven't got the the product market fit. So. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's not it's not binary. Product market fit isn't binary. It's like a spectrum. So you may get some traction, but not nearly the traction that that you want. And the other aspect is is that there are ways that maybe you have product market fit, but you're executing wrong. And some of those areas fall into product marketing. Like, are you telling the right story mm-hmm. to, to potential customers? And I think you know if people think about demand generation and marketing but they sometimes don't think about the product marketing and the storytelling piece of it. And when there's 10,000 SaaS companies out there, what I like to, to tell other marketing leaders is you, you have to really inspire people. You can't just explain, here's the products and features we have. Like you really mm-hmm. have to you know, move their mind to get them to pick you over all the other possible things they could invest in. So that's part of product market fit is having the right their product marketing. So it's not always rational. There's there's a real value to an, the, the kind of irrational, emotional uh, side of, of getting them to love your brand, ultimately, not just the product. Yeah, and just and just getting people to buy into it and to prioritize it because a lot of companies are getting to the point these days where they have like, well, we've licensed 200 different SaaS solutions. Do we really need 200 SaaS solutions? So mm-hmm. if you want to stay on that list of, of software solutions that companies are using, you really have to sort of win their hearts and their minds as much as you have to like explain your products and features. And I think the, 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 the one other component of it is, you know, product packaging and pricing. I've often hired, you know, some of the big, you know, pricing firms like Simon Kushner partners and, and others for very, you know, expensive engagements because pricing and, and positioning and the packaging, you know, does make, does make a big difference. Like you could get to product market fit there. And I, again, I think that has aspects of the of the execution bucket in it, right? Like if you price something wrong, maybe it's a, it's a product people want, but not for that price, right? So I think these are just some of the underlying things that if you get these things wrong, you're not going to get the growth you want. You're just you're just not. You're you're going nowhere fast. You, you mentioned we talked about the three buckets you mentioned earlier: focus, uh, big ideas, and execution. Tell me more about what uh, big ideas means to you. Yeah, so so big ideas is it's interesting. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, you know, you go to a trade show and there's a hundred booths, and you walk down and you talk to people. And you say, "What do you do?" And it's interesting because as I did that over the years, I, I would just notice that a pretty high percentage of the people I talk to, what their company does, sounds actually more like a feature than a product offering. And I'd say I, I think that's because it's hard to come up with ideas that are really big. That have that can have a you know a billion dollar exit and can yeah. have to 100 million in revenue. It's it's pretty hard to come up with like those sorts of big ideas, and it's also equally hard to then execute on on doing that. But I think it's just because you know some people you know do take pretty simple things and make something easier for people, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of success. But uh, but most of the success is particularly in tech and in SaaS and in fintech and in crypto are where people are doing some, they have some pretty big ideas about creating something pretty sophisticated. I mean, 
Salesforce, the original you know SaaS company. I mean, they've created something very sophisticated over 20 years, right? And so that's why they have one of the biggest valuations in SaaS. So I think it's just it's pretty hard to come up with those those big ideas. It's not easy. I'm intrigued. Uh, so when you think about your own career, and even I guess maybe conversations and th- uh, thoughts you've had with other you know guys with similar similar backgrounds. Do you you know you hear talk about you've been talking about some of the big exits are out there, and I know I know you've been in firms that have had those big exits as well, but it doesn't happen every time, and it's the kind of nature of the beast. Do you find that when uh, the companies that that are really focused on having an exit, it doesn't seem to happen? It's kind of like when you try and find a, a girlfriend or find the love of your life, you never find them until you stop looking. Do you feel like any of that kind of happens with? with companies, because I I personally feel like sometimes when uh, you build a business, when the the people that build their business are like, I'm never going to sell this, they're building, you know, businesses to list, that those end up being actually having the greatest valuations of the businesses that people follow themselves to to buy. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think expectations are important. I think that um, the teams that I've picked to work with have all been, had the right mindset that it takes it takes some time. You're not going to flip something, you know, in a year. So they tend to think about things in like, you know, four, you know, four year chunks, like how they assign options. It's like, you know, we think we can, we can make a big difference in four or five years. And so that's how I look at things is like, you know, is it a big enough idea that you're willing to put four or five years into this and work really hard at it? It's probably not going to be flipped in a year and it may take longer. Like my biggest success at event, you know, took 10 years. And so that that was a that that was a long that was a long haul. So it's important to to pick the, the areas to focus on and and to have the right big ideas in those in those areas because you might be spending five or ten years on it. And so a lot of times when I've talked to companies about joining them, I'm like, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it's it, they're bad ideas, but they're not ideas that I think you know scale and that I would want to work on you know eighty hours a week for five years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting segue. So, you know, now you're an entrepreneur in residence uh, at a, a VC. Explain, you know, for some people who are watching or listening to the show right now, uh, they may not be familiar with what an entrepreneur, entrepreneur residence even means, or even how these people kind of operate within within a, a, a fund. Can you explain a little bit about what, what that role is? And then uh, I have some follow-up questions for you. Yeah, essentially it's it's working with the portfolio companies on on their marketing and growth strategies and helping them to be successful early stage companies often need that sort of advice and you should know i'm i'm very old as my as my kids tell me um and so <laughs> I've, <laughs> I have a lot of experience in the last 20 years i've learned a lot of things and it's it's uh, i like working with a variety of companies and getting to learn their business and and to uh to help them you know, get get growth across all those portfolio companies. And what's it like, you know, as someone who's kind of jumped headfirst sometimes for, you know, maybe it's two years, sometimes it's uh, 10. Uh, what's it like working with a whole bunch of companies at the same time? It can be challenging. You, you know, you have to be organized and you have to make sure that you allocate the right amount of time, you know, to each one. And it's not a cookie cutter formula. I mean, some companies, you'll have to do different things to get growth. There's different business models. There's different strategies. There's different tactics. There's they operate in different industries, and so all of these things, based on who the buyers are, 
you know, require, you know, some creative thinking. It's, you can't just go read a book and say, here's how to do growth marketing, right? It, it really has to be sort of customized. And a lot of the great, you know, Gardner and Forrester put out a lot of great stuff. But even like when you read their research reports of here's how to do this area or think about this area, it's more like a guideline that you have to figure out how to mold to your business. And that's sort of what I try to help people do is, is take those best practices and, and come up with the right things I need to do to grow. You know, and I know, as you said a second ago, there's no, uh, you know, single, single answer that you can uh, kind of give to anyone because everyone's business is, is, uh, is a little bit different, just like snowflakes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, all jokes aside, like, you know, if you, if you, if any of the entrepreneurs are, are listening or watching right now and they have got a new business, let's assume it's maybe in, in the SaaS space. Is there any broad advice you can give people or at least of trends that they should be maybe watching out for right now that are, are super important to make sure they can they can grow their business? Yeah, I think that um, a couple of quick things is just, you know, getting great people is an underlying assumption that, that has to be there. You know, I would put a, put a lot of focus on that is just getting the right people on the team because you can't really execute without the right people. Another thing would be having the right processes. Um, the most successful companies I've been at one of the reasons that they're so successful is because they built processes that were repeatable and that would scale, not just doing a bunch of one-off things. And, you know, having the right product is a third thing. Just just really spend a lot of time to make sure you have the right product. That's the table stakes a lot of people uh, don't, don't nail, unfortunately. But let, let's, uh, let's change gears for a second. And I want to talk about one of your your favorite things. I know you're extremely passionate about, uh, which is the cryptocurrency uh, space. So, h- how how long have you been working uh, from dabbling to working in the cryptocurrency space out of interest? So about uh, two years. Okay, so you're not so you're not quite as crazy. Uh, you know, it, the, I guess the two years is working it, but I could have sworn you've been uh, you know at least buying or or dabbling in it even earlier than that. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been investing in in tech in tech stocks um, for um, twenty years, and so I just sort of in the last couple of years transitioned more into crypto because I do think it is fundamentally going to change how we all personally and at and at work, you know, manage manage our money. I mean, the future of money is bright. Yeah, and so you know, you've done uh, you know work in that in those industries before. So what would you say is like you know to kind of any of the naysayers out there? Uh, you know, who who don't believe in the in the growth of cryptocurrency? Yeah, so I think that just like the internet in the early days, it is controversial. There are you'll see stories every day that some people believe you know Bitcoin is worthless, and other people believe that it's going to a hundred thousand dollars per Bitcoin. You know, and so like, what's the answer? It's probably somewhere in between. But I think that generally speaking, there's now globally two trillion dollars invested in, in in crypto. Still not as much as the 90 trillion invested in stock markets, but it's definitely mature enough that, you know, we're not talking about, you know, penny stocks. And I think some of the technologies behind it, when you start to really research, you know, there's thousands of of crypto projects and coins and tokens, but there's really sort of a top 100 that are really interesting. And if you start to do research on those top 100, it's fascinating because they do have a lot of really great big ideas. There's a lot of people there who are really executing. And I think the thing that's going to happen in the next 12 to, to 24 months is that 
there's going to be mass adoption because the easiest way to to give an example is sites like Amazon, Walmart, Target are going to start accepting crypto payments and then everyone else will just have to do it to compete. And I mean, we're mm -hmm. seeing things like that with like PayPal has made it so that you can buy crypto and you can pay with crypto. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that other companies like Shopify, the power of million e-commerce websites, you know, mm -hmm. it's going, it, it's going to, there's going to be some of these ev main inflection events and it, it's going to happen. And I think that, um, you know, people who are investing, a lot of them will put five to 10% of their sort of portfolio into, into crypto assets. And that'll take the $2 trillion invested probably to something like North of 10 trillion, you know, two years from now, if yeah. I had to guess. So I, I just think that this is a, a, a huge shift and the, the way it'll impact all of our lives is going to be that, you know, I don't think my grandkids will, will, will use paper money. I think they'll, they'll look at me one day and be like, use paper money. Like, <laughs> yeah, wow. you're like, how crazy. <laughs> and yeah. we, they probably won't use banks either. They're going to be like, wait, you you gave your money to a bank and you paid them to hold it for you? Why would you do that? Like, I think, you know, <laughs> there's going to be sorts of conversations that I'm having 10 years from now. But, you know, I do think it's going to transform the way businesses operate with like smart contracts. There's just a lot of efficiency to be gained compared to the way things are traditionally been done in business with like, mm -hmm wire transfers and all these ineffective like global ways that money moves around. There's just, there's massive room for things to be transformed. And there's lots of people in the, in the industry that are really working on it. So there will be regulation and there will be, you know, things that need to be figured out, you know, just like with everything. I mean, there are scams out there, so you have to do your research and, and, you know, be careful, but generally there's a lot of, there's a lot of greatness there. Uh, I will uh, donate an oh ship story for today's episode. I think I sold all my Bitcoin at seven thousand and my Ethereum at just shy of four hundred, uh, and so I openly weep on a daily basis as I watch the numbers skyrocket there. Um, but you know, I just I, I think I, I will admit that as a guy who considers himself a futurist and really you know connected to all the happenings of technology, I've been really skeptical of it. I'm really skeptical of, you know, Bitcoin kind of specifically such a huge amount of the currency being owned by such a small number of, of whales. I continue to be kind of uh, proven wrong every single day in terms of the, you know, the value around that. But I'd like to believe something's going to emerge that's, that's kind of new and uh, a little more cleanly understood, you know, maybe some kind of stable coin or or something that uh, a larger consortium of people kind of get behind where there's a higher degree of transparency around it. So I really struggle to believe something with that much of the percentage of the, the currency like could become the global standard, but so far it is. So what do I know? <laughs> I mean, I think the one thing I've learned in terms of, and this helps in terms of driving growth quite a lot actually is I'm just a naturally curious person. And yeah. so, you know, I probably spent the most time just, you know, there, there's a saying in the, in the crypto space, do your own research, right? So just doing my own research, just reading and reading and, and invest and in, investigating. And there's, um, thanks to YouTube, there's lots of great, um, mm -hmm. content out there. There's lots of great written content and, you know, it's pretty easy when you're, if you're a curious person just, to just dig in and, and, mm -hmm. and learn, and learn about a, a space and is this the right space to focus on? 
And that's mm. what I did. You know, I've been doing for the last couple of years in crypto is like, is this the right space to focus on? And my, and my answer was from an investing perspective. Yeah. Cause I think there's, mm. there's a lot of growth here. And I, I didn't come to that conclusion from a low amount of research, probably 500 hours of like looking into it. So, mm. you know, I think I encourage people to do that in whatever, whatever space they're in. I think crypto is just a good example of an area where, it's definitely there's growth in it because there's a lot of money flowing in the two mm -hmm. trillion dollars that flowed in, you know, more than half of that has flowed in, you know, just this year. So that's is there, is there any particular uh, cryptocurrency or, or you know, uh, platform out there that you're excited about in particular? Yeah, I mean, I, I invest in a lot of sort of the, the, the 20 largest that have the, the 20 largest market caps. So I like I like a lot of them. It's funny because a lot of them are competing and they trash talk each other, which I think is hilarious because there's room for more than one, right? You know, but but I do have some some projects that I really am interested. I have more interest in in terms of like helium is one that um, Andreas and Horowitz put 111 million in because they think they can 10x that. That's why VCs have put in that amount of money. And it's a mesh network for Internet of Things devices. And Very so cool. I actually run Helium hotspots. And uh, so I make money from mining, which is different than Bitcoin mining because it's environmentally friendly. And it's, yeah. I think it's fascinating and a good example that when people say crypto doesn't have any application, it does have application because like the Helium network allows like companies like Lime to keep track of where all their powered scooters are. Yeah. They, they came up with a, a rewards uh, a rewards scheme using crypto to pay out $35 million a month in rewards globally to people who are running hotspots. And I thought that's pretty darn genius. You know, I mean, that's like they're building a global network that was too expensive for one central entity to build. And they came up with using crypto as a, a rewards mechanism to make it happen. And they've gotten hundreds of thousands of people to to play. And that's pretty remarkable. Like, and so I just use that that one project as an example of like there are functionality there that's beneficial to hundreds of thousands to millions of people, and that's that's sort of the same thing I saw at the start of the internet, right? Um, back back in the nineteen nine late nineteen nineties. I think it will start becoming more and more ubiquitous. I think because some of the platforms and tools I'm seeing out there that I think are really interesting are just the uh, the tools out there that effectively help you create other things on, on these networks. So blanking on the name of it, but I was looking at um, uh, one the other day that basically helped you set up uh, a DAO, uh, so a decentralized autonomous organization for those of you, uh, you know, kind of tuning in. And it was, you know, for that's for a company like Camillion Collective that is largely decentralized, I'm quite fascinated by this kind of organizational style we operate, you know, in a, in a, using a derivative management style called holacracy, but effectively it creates almost like a decentralized org that has a bit of a, a free flowing leadership structure. And I'm really intrigued. Uh, you know, we've done that by virtue of just organizational design and having a, you know, standard of, of how we communicate and so on and interact with each other. But seeing people effectively using technology to create those same kind of mechanisms. Um, and even more distributed, uh, so people, the, the nodes on the network, so to speak, don't even have to know each other, I think is really, really interesting and really exciting. And the fact that, you know, now these new tools make it that those that kind of thinking accessible to anyone, 
I, I think it's remarkable. And you might you you might find that you know I remember years years ago when Chameleon Collective was first born, people saying, oh, well, you know, you you kind your company kind of operates a little bit like the blockchain. And you know, I think there's there's new new ways that people are working now that have been hyper accelerated by you know all the events that have happened in the world the last uh, the last you know almost two years now. And you might see a lot of these things, uh, you know, like that get basically adoption get massively accelerated. So you could argue that, you know, when you start thinking about these high growth companies, uh, that uh, what's the old saying, the uh, opportunity in chaos and the the chaos drives growth for certain parts of the industry out there right now. So one last question for you, uh, completely off subject. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about the other thing I know you're really passionate about that, you know, and even though you and I don't get to talk every day. Uh, I, I lets me feel uh, connected to you, uh, which is your super awesome travel Instagram account. I think I was peeking at the other day. I think you're o- o- over twenty five thousand followers now, which I think is, is pretty pretty awesome. Uh, and you're always kind of cataloging your great world travel adventures. And I know you haven't been traveling quite as much as you used to, but are you are you still keeping that up and and still passionate about it? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I've been to sixty countries. And it's fascinating for me to just go around the world and see how people in different countries, you know, live differently, have different cultures, think differently about things. That's just a fascinating thing to, to experience as a naturally curious person. And, you know, I'm very into to photography. So between how great the iPhone cameras have become, I also do, do uh, where it's allowed, you know, drone photography and videos which gives you like a whole different perspective than like when you're just on the ground. And so, you know, you got to have some great, great hobbies to, to have some work-life balance. And that's uh, something, you know, my family and I, you know, really, really enjoy. So I just grabbed uh, my, my first uh, FPV, first person view drone, uh, that DJI FPV. I don't know if you've had a chance to play with that. I mean, we were like the full VR goggles and everything. Yeah. Awesome. I have one of those, like yeah. Full supermaning everywhere you go. <laughs> it's the coolest. But my my DJI drones are the coolest toys that I own uh, because you know when you fly them with your phone, it, you can see like you're sitting in the drone like a pilot, and the and the and the goggles that make it seem like you're actually in it are, are like you're saying are even a, a better thing. But fascinating technology, fascinating. Yeah. There's a reason millions of people have bought them is because they yeah. it, it does give you just you know if you're into photography, it gives you some great stuff. So you've been to 60 countries. More importantly, how many countries has the dog been to? Oh, he's a very well-traveled uh, puppy, but mainly the United States. That, oh, no okay, one okay. Yeah, he's, not, he's, not, he's not international yet. <laughs> but I think, he's, I think he's traveled to maybe 10 states in a year and a half. So, I mean, he's building up the frequent flyer miles. Yeah, it's good. He's, he's, is he a good flyer? He's, he's good. He's good. He's, he, you know, I mean, his main job is to sleep, sleep most of the time. So he does that very well. Pro trained. I love it. Well, I'm going to use that as a great, great jumping off point. Eric, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you managed to find some time to, to chat with us today. You know, obviously, as I, I said at the beginning of the uh, show today, I've always been a big fan of, of your many uh, professional accomplishments and frankly, of you as just as a general person. Uh, yeah, I'd like to thank uh, all of you who've been watching or listening to our ship show today, whether you're tuning in through any of our uh, social channels uh, or watching live LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you're listening to our audio podcast on any one of the different audio platforms that we now distribute our podcast on. I really want to thank you uh, for tuning in. It really means the world to us. Uh, the best thing you could do to continue to support our ship 
is you know give us a like, follow us, subscribe, whatever it is. But you know our favorite is we always enjoy a good subscription on uh, YouTube. Eric, any any last and uh, and final words? No, just uh, good luck to everyone out there. It's tough to be a driver of growth and and to get to the success that that most people want. So. Good luck. If I can ever be helpful to anyone, please, please feel free to, to reach out. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eric. And thank you, everyone who's been tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this week's O-Ship. The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie, we'll see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O-Ship Show.